This is The Antidote by Amani. Welcome back to Antidote, the culture and politics podcast for millennials and Gen Z, where we search for the cure to today's viral social issues. Of course, today, to take a look at the aftermath of the 2020 elections and where the chips are falling, is the one and only Linda Sarsour, activist, community organizer, and co-founder of Until Freedom. Linda, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So this is going to be such a fun conversation. I actually have been really looking forward to when we could have you on. I honestly can't fucking wait to talk about these things with you because I couldn't think of a better person to dig into them with. So for full transparency, I actually was planning on this episode to be my first solo episode and to have you on for the following week. Because for this episode, I really wanted to dig into what the Biden presidency is going to mean for Muslim women. But obviously, there's absolutely no better guest to really dig into that with than yourself, especially because of, as I mentioned, not only your recent political successes, but also some of the controversies that you got embroiled in over the course of this election cycle. So I guess the first place I want to start, especially because you have been relentless out there on the trail, really not only organizing for Breonna Taylor over the past several months, but also really getting out the vote for this campaign. How are you feeling right now? How's Linda doing? I mean, Linda's doing fine. I'm still focused. I know that this wasn't the end. Um, It's in fact just the beginning for our movement and for our communities and for Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, Palestinian Americans, the people that I come from and I love. So I'm just like, that was just a thing that happened. We finished now on to the next. That's where I am right now. I think that's kind of the attitude that everyone has been having in response to everything. And actually, I've been following your lead when it came to how to react or how to move when it came to this this election cycle, because I don't think either one of us felt necessarily represented by it. How do you feel that that Biden won the presidency? At the end of the day, it was our communities that won that presidency. We had a mission and the mission has been accomplished, which was to defeat Donald Trump and his administration, to defeat the fascists, to remind people that we are the majority, you know, that we did not allow, you know, the racists to out-organize us, you know. And so that for me was the very part of me that felt so proud. And proud is, is an understatement watching Muslim American voters in the states that I organized with, especially in Michigan. I don't know if you remember, but in 2016, Uh, Hillary lost Michigan by less than 10,000 votes. And then this time around, Donald Trump lost Michigan by over 145,000 votes. And so our people are in that number. And I watched them, first-time voters, aunties, uncles. I watched communities. Like I watched entire lines that were full of women in hijab and people that look like us, that pray like us. So I just feel really proud. I never really felt overly represented in the Biden campaign. He wasn't my first, second, third, maybe not even my fourth choice. But What I do know that this election wasn't about me and my feelings. It was about knowing that the Biden administration is going to repeal the Muslim ban on day one. That's thousands of Muslim families that are going to be reunited. Nobody can take that away from us or from the families that have been impacted by that issue. The reinstatement of DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, those are about a million 
young people, many of whom millennials and younger, who are were impacted by this rescinding of that program, which took away their legalization status that the Obama administration had given to them. So those people are going to get that restored temporary protected status for Syrians and Yemenis and other uh, countries that are non-Muslim countries are going to be reinstated. The cap on the number of refugees that we allow into the United States of America is going to be increased. So I'm not saying that that's transformative. It just takes us back to the four years where we started before Donald Trump. But you know what? At the end of the day, that impacts people's families. And I'm proud of that, that we can take them back to those days at least, and then work for a future that is more transformative. I mean, that's the thing, right? I think that's what so many of us were conflicted by when we did throw our support behind a campaign that obviously didn't necessarily speak to the sanctity of our communities or our protections that, you know, even just listening, you read it back to me about just the, the basic policies that will have a tremendous impact on potentially millions of people just by this change of administration. To me, I think that the bottom line is that that alone is worth it, you know? But that's the thing too, what you just said is that it's just, it's not transformative by any means. It's just taking us back to four years where we started. And of course it's amazing when we all heard that Biden pledged to repeal the Muslim ban on day one, but is the bar that low for this new, this new administration that's coming in? Unfortunately, Donald Trump's bar was so low. It was like lower than any bar we've ever had. So anything above that bar, unfortunately, is raising the bar. And I think that our task at hand is for the movements that we're a part of to raise that bar much higher, not only for this administration, but for administrations to come. Like I said, you know, all the things that are named are not transformative policy but they still do impact people's lives. And we have to take that into account. Remember that this campaign for me, this kind of election season was not about you know, any particular community. It was about solidarity, right? For me, like when I was organizing, I was not organizing on the Biden campaign. I was not affiliated with the campaign. I didn't wanna be affiliated with the campaign. I never did events with the campaign. My intention of organizing was to do political education around the country, particularly with Muslim American voters, but also other voters of color and say, listen, you're not, you're not electing your friend in the White House. Nobody elects their friends. It's not about your friend. You're not going to have dinner with Joe Biden. He's your opponent in the White House. It's, it's up to you. It's your responsibility. Like, what's Amani about to do to hold Joe Biden accountable? You know what I'm saying? Like, a lot of times we think about politics like you're picking, like, you know, the bachelor or something. I don't know what people think that they're doing, but in the, that's not what politics is. Politics is like, look, you have some choices. Unfortunately, next time, you know, you have to work even harder for your choice to make your person the nominee or the person that aligns with you. But when they don't, you do got to pick from whatever menus shared with you because people's lives are at stake. So for me, it was something that Bernie had said uh, early on when he first, when he restarted his second campaign, where he said, are you willing to fight for somebody that you do not know? And that's what I was doing. I felt like I was fighting for Muslim families that were impacted by the Muslim ban. I may not know them or know their name, but I know they were impacted by it. And that's why I went to the polls. And that's why I organized in six states. I literally was on a tour bus kind of situation going from city to city. And it was very inspiring getting to meet people from across the country. But politics for me is not about people's personal feelings. And unfortunately in the United States, that's what politics has become. It's all about you know your little heart and your little feelings and who you like and who you don't like. And it's not really about that. If you really are for the most marginalized people, then you can't complain online about it. You gotta be in the street about it. And so if you were not knocking doors or doing the calls for whoever your candidate was, then you can't really be online talking about, you know, Joe Biden's whack. Um, not to say that that may not be true, but you got to do the work. 
Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I obviously saw that with your work with Until Freedom, with our girl Tamika, who obviously was one of the co-founders of the Women's March with yourself. And I watched that unravel on social media. I was like, are, are these people in a tour bus, like going around the country, getting people to get out the vote? Can, like, what was that work about? What was it like? What we um, intended to do with Until Freedom and this uh, another group that we organized with called Woke Vote, um, their co-founder is a woman named Dewana Thompson. She's out from Birmingham, Alabama. We basically were like, okay, where do people not go? Where are the communities that nobody touches? And what we did was, is we go to what Until Freedom calls the hood beyond the hood. And so this is where people, um, the, the Democratic Party says these voters are what they call low propensity voters. These are people that don't either are not registered or don't vote or haven't voted in like eight years. Maybe they voted Obama first time and never voted again after that. So usually campaigns don't target those people because they see them as a waste of resources because they don't have a tradition of, of voting. We actually think the low propensity voters are the most high potential voters because the people who always vote are going to vote. So what are you do, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to expand the electorate. You're supposed to be encouraging and motivating more people to come. We have different tactics. We have a DJ pop ups where we just pop up in a community. We play loud music on a whole DJ set. People come out of the houses. We talk to them. We have a party in the street, like a black party. We do door knocking. You know, in Detroit, we went to the Sojourner houses, um, which is in northern Detroit. We went to Durham, North Carolina, into a community um, that was so wonderful. And they basically said to us, ain't nobody ever knocked on our doors over here. So we were actually going to communities that were not, were not yet touched. You know, we went to Orlando, into Miami, we went to Atlanta, Georgia, where, by the way, there was excellent organizing already happening in places like Atlanta. We went to Philly and Pittsburgh. And then, of course, we ended up in Detroit and Dearborn. But the point is, is that those are the folks that we were targeting the most. So we would have, we had some celebrities that joined us, some basketball players, some college basketball players from some of the different cities we were in. And that was inspiring just to see people who are from there. You know, we went to North Carolina. So Rhapsody, who's one of the best lyricists right now, um, she's from Durham. That's where she lives. And so she was able to come out and be in her own with amongst her own people. You know, we had Common in Atlanta. We had Puff in Florida. And again, just moving on um, along the, the states, just being with really incredible people and just organizing, just talking to ordinary people and SWAT taking people to the polls and organizing. And it was great. It was a very inspirational tour. It was called State of Emergency. And the, that's what the bus said. So that in of itself brought people out. Like, who are these people? Why are they in this bus? Why does the bus say State of Emergency? So there was, their whole thing was like really set up nicely. That's beautiful. And honestly badass because I couldn't think of a better way just within the current context of things to be able to get out the vote in a way that is engaging that's reaching so many people in such a short amount of time it seemed like that you guys were doing all of this and that's exactly what this this election needed in order for us to really push the needle and I'm really glad that you brought up Michigan because I think Michigan really just it really impressed all of us with the way that it not only flipped blue, but that it did so because of this record-breaking turnout that it had that we've seen, obviously in large part due to the heavily Arab and Muslim communities that exist within Michigan. And obviously also due to the organizing and leadership of the badass Muslim women that we have out there, like yourself being out there organizing, like Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who really rallied the troops out there on the ground and got so many people to come out and vote for Biden, no matter what. 
And it makes me feel a certain type of way, you know, because I, I do think that Muslims this year in this election absolutely had a tremendous impact. And it was in large part due to Muslim women. And yet we saw over the course of Biden's campaign, there was a moment where you got caught up, right? You have some history now with Biden and his team because what exactly happened? It was like you were associated with a panel that was happening with the Democratic National Convention and then they made a statement about it. Like, can you get into that? Yeah, and I want to say about Michigan and Rashida, you know, Sister Neda, Sister Sumeya, Sister Sadie. There were so many Muslim women that had been organizing and not just for this election, but they've been organizing within the four years since the last time around. So I want to give them a shout out and make sure that people know that Michigan has some of the most boldest, most strategic organizers, of course, our brothers as well um, in the state of Michigan. Basically, I was minding my own business in Louisville, Kentucky. It was during the DNC convention. And I was invited to the Muslim Delegates and Allies Assembly. Now, let's be clear. I was a delegate, an actual official credential delegate to the Democratic National Convention on behalf of Senator Bernie Sanders. I was not in a place that I didn't belong in, that I was not credentialed to be in. And to be honest with you, I didn't really even want to be there. But people thought it was important for my voice to be there to give legitimacy to the process and to our conversation with a political party that has not always aligned with our community in the ways that they know they should have. So I went to this, you know, this delegates assembly. It was very basic. I wasn't even that controversial. I didn't even say anything controversial. I never mentioned BDS. I said one, I said something, you know, to the point of like, while our community is a community that absolutely cares about foreign policy issues, including Palestine and Syria and Iran and something like that. And then I said, but we also care about domestic issues. And I talked about healthcare and criminal justice and immigration. And that's it. I didn't say anything controversial. It was actually out of character. I was actually quite bland that day. (laughs) It was over. It was like a three to four minute thing. It's all public so people can watch it online. And that's it. And we walked away and everything was fine. All of a sudden, right-wing Zionists came out um, acting horrified that uh, I spoke at the quote DNC, even though I was a credentialed DNC delegate and I had every right to be in whatever space I wanted to be in. And so the, the campaign, and I won't take it all the way up to Biden because it doesn't get that far up. So we have to be clear about who. It was a Zionist who was in their comms department, who was the director of, of rapid response. And he basically said, oh, you know, he immediately cowered to the right wing, you know, instead of seeing Breitbart and Daily Caller, you just, if you're a really strategic rapid response, you know, a comms person, you immediately know those are not legitimate sources. You are not to cower. You're not going to get any votes out of the Daily Caller or any of the right wing Zionist media or any of the, you know, pro-Trump or conservative media. But of course he uh, immediately answered. His name was um, Andrew Bates, basically made a statement um, to a right wing media outlets uh, saying that he disavowed my views and I did not have any affiliation with the Biden campaign. Uh, And which was, to be quite honest with you, the part about me having no affiliation with the campaign came at the right time because I started at that moment saying to people, we have to support this Biden, you know, nomination because of our communities and all these issues. And people started questioning, was I getting paid by the campaign? How did I get to this place? And thank God they said I wasn't affiliated with the campaign, which gave me my street creds back. But the (laughs) the part that outraged our community was the part about disavowing my views. 
I hold mainstream views in Palestinian, Arab American and Muslim communities. If you're gonna disavow my vehement critique of the state of Israel, majority of the people in my community share my views. If you're gonna you know, criticize me for my support of the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, well, that's something majority of the people in my community. So what happened was, it was actually a very uniting moment for Arab American, Muslim American, and Palestinian American leaders and organizers, where they all came together, even ones that don't always agree on things came together because they were personally offended by the campaign saying that they disavowed my views, which the views that I had, they shared. And that was really it. And that's what happened. And so from there, I continued to keep my eye on the prize. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not a selfish person. I, I could have been like, forget the Biden campaign. I'm gonna just let them be out there since they, they wanna disavow my views. I could have just walked away and just been like, whatever. But it ain't about me. Um, I don't care you know, about uh, things like that. Um, I have people that I love and people that I fight for and it's not about my personal feelings. So I still continue to be on the trail telling people Joe Biden is not our enemy. He will be our opponent in the White House. Um, and he is someone that we are going to be able to push uh, to be more progressive on the issues that we care about. Yeah, I mean, and just like it, it wasn't about you, it wasn't about Biden either. You know, like I, I keep saying, I think that a lot of marginalized communities are on the same page that Biden won this presidency in large part because it was a referendum on the Trump presidency, not because we think that our liberation is going to come with this administration by any means. But I am curious if you think that, I mean, obviously that situation had a lot to do with your outspokenness on the Palestine issue within this context. And it makes me also question a lot of the celebration around Harris, right? I mean, obviously it, it is rightfully celebrated that we finally have our first woman vice president, but even with someone like Kamala, who is a tremendous supporter of APAC and um, you know, has also, as you mentioned, the, the needle has been getting pushed on the Palestine issue when it comes to human rights. And even in spite of that, she has been relentless in where she stands on that issue. And it makes me wonder if that is the biggest indicator of where she stands when it comes to political equity for the issues that are most important to Muslim women and our communities. I think one thing we have to always think about in the larger conversation about whether it be Palestine or really any issue, Amani, is about what are we doing? What conversations have we had with Kamala? Who are the Palestinian leaders that ever sat down with Kamala to talk to her about Palestine? Yeah. And so what I keep telling people is that people beat you to it. They do the political education. They, they take you with them on the trips. They do all this work. They fundraise for you. They work on your political campaigns. You know, they do what they really do what they're supposed to do. The question is, what have we done? And that's one of the things that gets me even to be a controversial figure within our own community. Because I'm always like, you could be mad at Kamala. That's fine. But the question is, what have you done? You know what I mean? What have you done to make Kamala understand the plight of the Palestinian people? What meetings have we had? Were we ever part of the support that she got at becoming the first Black woman to ever go to the U.S. Senate? You know, Kamala has had a lot of firsts. Um, she has made history many times. Do I agree with her on her attending APAC events? Do I agree with her um, overall on the issue of Israel-Palestine? Of course I don't. But I also don't fault her alone. I fault our community. These moments are just reminding us how much more we have to do. But what I will say, she said recently, actually, um, it's, she's been quoted saying that under this next administration, we're going to, you know, rekindle our ties with the Palestinian people. It talked about the reinstatement of funding to groups like UNRWA. And again, I'm not saying those things are transformative. They only take us back four years, right? 
But when I say to people, I still see that as a step forward because Palestine could have been sidelined and people would have been like, we're not even touching it. But I truly believe that a progressive movement that's going to hold this administration accountable, that does their homework and does their work, we are going to get this administration a much better place on Palestine, as we have been able to do for many down ballot candidates across the country and elected officials across the country. Absolutely. I mean, even just looking back at the track record that Biden has, right, when when I'm trying to think about what this presidency is going to look like for the Muslim community and other marginalized communities as well, it's impossible to ignore the increased systemic discrimination of Muslims that we have been experiencing under Trump was not created by Trump or his, his administration, right? I mean, before Trump got into office, the Obama administration, obviously that uh, of which Biden was the, the vice president, it just took a lot of the, the anti-Muslim policies that were established by Bush and in some ways even extended them, you know, through the CVE programs that they instated, the way that they really framed the entire issue of extremism in our country solely through the lens of quote unquote Islamism rather than the real threats facing our country. And I'm wondering how you feel about that, what you think needs to be done in order to really change the the way that the next administration treats this? I mean, is there even any hope that there could be a change in the way that these policies are impacting us? Absolutely. I think what people need to understand is during this entire election, we've started setting the agenda and setting the tone on these issues. So if you recall, even recently within the last few months, there was an Arab Americans for Biden, and there was actually a policy platform. And in that policy platform, the countering violent extremism program and specifically was talked about about being ended about reframing that so it's not just a program that focuses on you know quote extremism coming from people who claim to be muslims and that's a big deal because that's a program we've been trying to fight or you know figure out how to dismantle for almost the last you know 15 years or even or a little less than that because of course it was called something else before that and they just keep rebranding So I'm not saying that this administration is going to be transformative in any way, but I do think that they're going to listen. One thing that I know for sure is that Biden is not going to call our community terrorists, right? Biden is not going to to engage in the type of horrific rhetoric that that Trump and his folks did over the last few years. And so I think that's going to help us have some sort of open door policy. And I'm not talking about me personally, I'm talking about leaders in our community. Everybody in our community is going to play a role. There will be people who will engage this administration, will push them to you know, do the policies, have the dialogue, and then there'll be other people on the outside. They're going to be part of a larger progressive movement pushing this administration forward. But to claim that Trump and Biden are going to be the same president or that we're going to see the same thing under both administrations, I don't believe that at all. And I'm not saying that things will get better, not, especially in the from the perspective of hate crimes. The MAGA people are still out in the street. 70 million Americans voted for xenophobia, racism, for Islamophobia, for homophobia, for transphobia, for ableism, for sexism. I mean, those people are still our neighbors. There are doctors, there are lawyers, there are people who live in our community. They may be our kids' teachers. Like These people are still amongst us. And so I do not believe that the Biden administration somehow is going to make hate crimes magically disappear or Muslim women all of a sudden are going to be feel safe in their communities or all of a sudden black people will not be, you know, shot or killed by police in their communities. I don't think that those things are going to end under a Biden administration. What I do think is going to happen under a Biden administration is we'll see how powerful our movements are, how much we can organize and mobilize under this administration. 
because unfortunately we did not do that in a consistent way under the Obama administration. Again, back to my original point that I was saying about Kamala, same thing with the Obama administration. Do I believe that there were outrageous policies under the Obama administration? Do I believe he continued policies from the Bush administration and to your point, even expanded on some? Yes. But do I also put some fault and responsibility on our movements? Absolutely, because we believed him. We, we, we were like, oh, constitutional lawyer from Chicago, we good. And everybody kind of went back and started doing some local organizing, but on a national level, we did not mass mobilize in Washington, D.C. on a consistent basis, letting Obama know we watching you. We expecting you to do the right thing. We kind of left them out there. Um, and then we were mad when he didn't do what he was supposed to do. That's not how politics works. You got to build the political will for the leaders to do what they need to do. I mean, I don't know. I don't know, because I was I was working out in D.C. with the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee during Obama's term. And I did see that there were a lot of like civil rights leaders that were always actively engaging with the Obama administration. I don't think that any of us are saying that like a Biden presidency would be the equivalent of a Trump presidency by any means. But obviously, you know, a, a lot of young people in 2016, even though in hindsight, this was like really fucked up, but a lot of them were saying, you know, let Trump be the president because at least the racism's going to be out in the open and we're going to see the hate. We're going to be able to put our finger on and all of that stuff, which obviously was absolutely destructive. But I guess it's more so a question of, you know, especially as we keep repeating, you know, it's just go bringing the clock back four years to where we were. Is it going to be more dangerous for us to have to deal with this covert Islamophobia that is within the system now and upheld by these laws and by these policies and institutions? Like, what, how do you feel about that? Well, what I'm saying to you, and I agree, there's always been, you know, lobbyists from the left and, and progressives who've been on the Hill and try to, you know, engage members of Congress and go to the White House. But there's a saying that I, I saw once online that really spoke to me that said, a man with no followers is a, only a man taking a walk. So you could be a civil rights leader walking in the halls of Congress, but if you don't have thousands of people mass mobilized in the street, what you're doing there doesn't matter. And so what I'm saying is under the Obama administration, there was still consistent engagement. There were still people out there saying, here are the things that we need you to do. But there weren't thousands of people shutting down Washington, D.C. And so if you're not going to build the revolution outside, then the conversations you have inside don't go anywhere because people are like, what are the consequences? So what if Manny goes in and talks to, you know, chief of staff at the White House and says, here are the three things that we need you to do. And the chief of staff doesn't see millions of people in the street. The chief of staff is going to be like, who, who, what, what, what's a Manny going to do? You know, what's so-and-so civil rights leader going to do? What's so-and-so activist organizer going to do? We need the strategic insiders doing their thing on the inside and we need the protesters on the street. And so you can't have one without the other. You can't have protesters in the street without the strategic policy people and the brilliant people of color and black women that we have doing policy work. And then you can't have the brilliant policy folks going in there to have the conversation without the people in the street who are mobilizing. So you and I go way, way back, right? We've had countless conversations like this about organizing what's effective. I'm, for me, even just going through my journey with an influence like yourself, you know, to be able to organize in the time of Linda Sarsour and be able to learn from your leadership has been one of the most eye-opening and enlightening experiences for me when it comes to developing my leadership as well. And one anecdote that I always love to tell people about like how we first, first met, I don't know if you remember this because I, I brought it up to you before, but like the first time we met was back when you were still working in Brooklyn and I was in college and a friend of mine had a meeting with you and I was like, 
so I was like your fangirl at that time. I was like, oh my God, like you're meeting Linda. Like, obviously I'm going to come. And when I showed up to your office at your civil rights group, I literally did not speak one single word to you that entire first meeting period, because I was like, so intimidated and just like, oh my God, like, you know, the Shiro is right here in front of me and stuff. And just like thinking back to that time, you know, you were working out of this small office out of your home, but honestly, you made Brooklyn almost like an epicenter for where a lot of this noise was coming from. And since then, obviously you've moved on to bigger and even more national type of movements. But I always wanted to ask you if your definition or your approach or philosophy towards organizing has changed over the years, you know, your approach, and if so, how has it changed? I think it's changed and not changed at the same time. One of the things that makes me different from a lot of organizers is that I come from grassroots organizing. I come from a bit very local community. And so I didn't catapult from like, you know, being someone who cared about issues and went to a national spotlight because somehow I had like a social media following. And you know this, you've done this in, you know, your university organizing. Like I was organizing literally door to door in my own community. I was at the masjid, I was doing workshops. I was training young people in the community. I was doing stuff at the local high school, at the Islamic schools. And so I come from that. So my philosophy, that part of my philosophy that has not changed is you still, no matter where you go, have to be rooted in a local community. And so I still live in my local community. I still see the same people I've been organizing with for almost 20 years now. And so those people keep me humble and they remind me why I do the work that I do. I think my philosophy of change of, of organizing has changed over time in the last 20 years to be much more intersectional as an Arab American, Muslim American organizer in a Muslim American, Arab American community. And then I realized early on, maybe around 2010, I said, wait a minute, this is not going to work. We need to figure out how to take our issues and integrate them into the larger movements for racial justice and immigrant rights. And so since, you know, that time, that kind of revelation I had, you know, I've made sure that Arab communities and Muslim communities are at the center of the table on immigration and immigrant rights. On the issue of criminal justice and how the criminal justice impacts communities, we, the Muslim American community, know a lot about that. And so to bring us into that larger conversation on detention and incarceration. And so I moved on to also understand that I am not just a Muslim and an Arab and a Palestinian American, I'm an organizer, I'm an activist. So being able to be a mainstream voice amongst progressives and progressive politics also took me out of the boxes that I had put myself in. And so what I've learned, my philosophy is that don't box yourself in. You can be a leader and you can actually be a leader in a lot of communities and on a lot of issues. And so my leadership has taken me now specifically around criminal justice and racial justice, which really are the issues that move me. Those are the issues that I feel the most whole in um, organizing amongst black communities, particularly black Muslim and black, you know, non-Muslim communities and seeing the intersection there and trying to bridge communities like during our state of emergency tour, taking the entire state of emergency entourage, uh, which were all black. I was the only not black one in the whole entourage and taking them to Masjid Allah, which is in Philadelphia, and it's a very historic community of Black Muslims. And so that was beautiful for me to be able to introduce Black folks who are not Muslim to the core of our community, which are Black Muslims, um, or Black non-Muslims to Black Muslims in our, in our community. So that's kind of been my journey, too. I've also evolved in that area as well. So anyway, that's just the, the breadth of the, the philosophy of being in a grassroots community and not boxing yourself in and, and being able to be a voice for a lot of issues. Um, and that does not dilute who you are and what you stand for. Like the intersectionality of the issues we're fighting for. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because 
you and I are in some of the same American Muslim leader group chats, and I'm sure you might have seen this or remember this happening when the Muslim ban was taking place that the, you know, at the very start of it, those group chats were lighting up with what we have to do next, how we're going to react. And I remember that one of the topics that came up was the question of where are our black brothers and sisters? We need to engage them. We need to have them stand by our side right now. And it was literally like maybe months following, uh, you know, the height of the Black Lives Matter and the Ferguson protests where, you know, like the non-Black Muslim community was largely absent. Where do you think is our shortcoming when it comes to that intersectionality? Like, what do we need to do to, to be better than this? We just have to open our eyes. Even when you look at the Muslim ban, half the countries in the first list were Black um, Muslim majority countries. I mean, Somalis are Black. You know, originally Sudan was on the list. It's a country of Black Arabs, you know, many of whom consider themselves to be Arabs as well. And so our community just has to open their eyes to who we are and who ha we have always been for like centuries. We have shortcomings amongst our non-Black Muslim American community. Uh, we, we have tried for so many years this idea of access to power, you know, trying to align ourselves with white power is what we've done and so many other immigrant communities have had to have tried to do. At the end of the day, 9-11, um, this horrific attacks of 9-11 taught us that no matter what you do and how, how much access to power you try by selling out your people or by not aligning with the most marginalized in your community, does nothing for you. In fact, it, and eventually you become part of the most marginalized. So for us, for me, it's always been about solidarity with black Muslims within our own community, both who are African-American and indigenous, but also those who are, as you know, black Africans in our community, which are a very big population in New York City, significant number of black Muslims are Africans. And then you look at that at, across the country. I mean, at least at the minimum, a quarter of our community is African-American, if not more than that. And so we have a lot, a lot of work to do, but I do commend our community and watching some of our organizations evolve around taking stances around, you know, cases of police brutality, around being a little bit more engaged and hoping that they continue to do that on a large scale. So I know that it's been frustrating and I know that sometimes our black Muslim family feels disappointed in us and um, I don't blame them and they have every right to be disappointed. I know we can do more. We have the resources to do more. We have the intellect to do more. We have the heart to do more. And I'm just proud of the next generation that has come up, um, the millennials uh, who have come up and the Gen Z and others on college campuses who are overcompensating for the things that maybe our moms and dads um, and maybe our grandparents have not done. So you have been one of the loudest voices throughout this election cycle that, look, we have to organize beyond the outcome of this presidential race. It's like, all right, we're going to get Trump out of office. And then the next president, we have to organize to hold them accountable on the issues where they're falling short. So I want to ask you, what are the top priorities now that we're here? What do we need to turn our full focus on immediately, you know, within within the first 100 days? We got to make sure that the Biden administration at the bare minimum fulfills the promises of the first 100 days, which is to reinstate DACA. It's to repeal the Muslim ban. It's to reinstate funding uh, for Palestinian refugees under UNRWA. Like they have made very clear things that they're going to do in the first 100 days. So you start with what they've committed to and make sure that they fulfill those things. And then we have to regroup as a movement to start putting, uh, pushing them on some transformative policies. But before we even get there, Imani, we do have a priority as a movement and that's Georgia. 
we have to win those two Senate runoffs. There, even if Biden goes to the White House, which he is, of course, and he's won fair and square, going to the White House without a Senate majority, without a Democratic Senate majority, is he's going to be a lame duck president. He's not going to be able to do things that are long term. He will be able to do some executive orders, but just like Trump made some executive orders, and now Biden is going to go back and repeal those executive orders, the next administration could do the same thing to Biden's executive orders. So we need people to volunteer to make calls, volunteer to do texts, whatever couple of dollars you have, give it to Raphael Warnock, you know, give it to the fund that's supporting Ossoff and Warnock. There's multiple funds out there. Support the New Georgia project, support the Georgia Muslim Voter Project, support the Care Georgia chapter, which are organizing Muslim voters on the ground. You know, Empower Change will be working with the local organizers there to help them build a, a national program to get Muslims to be able to plug in to support those two Georgia you know, runoffs. So that's the first priority. Let's get a Democratic Senate majority. And then we start pushing progressive legislation. We have a Democratic majority in the House already. If we get a Democratic majority in the Senate, then when Biden gets a Medicare for all bill, he's going to have to answer to the movement about whether he's going to sign a Medicare for all bill. So at the end of the day, the work is really in our court. The ball is in our court. And that's the top priority. And then I think the movement has a lot of things on their plate around the Breathe Act, you know, specifically looking at some criminal justice reform legislation, you know, the Green New Deal and some of the work around climate justice coming out of millennials like and, and younger Gen Z out of Sunrise Movement. So there's a lot to do. The question is, will we be focused? Will we be focused? And will we stay organized and mobilized in the same way that we were under Trump? Because under Trump, we were, we were organizing in a reactive way. Now we have the opportunity to be proactive. And so I hope that we do that. And I hope that we see the product coming out of this administration. So obviously, Linda, you and I can sit and talk about this for hours. But I know that you have, as we just explained, your work truly cut out for you. And that is no exaggeration. So I want to ask you the question that we ask every guest on the Antidote podcast, which is, what is right now at the top of your mind politically? I think right now at the top of my mind politically uh, is Breonna Taylor. I think that Breonna Taylor is not only a personal case of a black woman murdered at the hands of the police, but it is a political case to see where the political courage is and where the political courage is of our movements to stay on focus and make sure that Breonna Taylor gets justice. So as you know, we we'll be going back to Louisville, Kentucky. We have a long-term commitment to that community. And we're already watching things unfold, watching Daniel Cameron join lawsuits around election fraud and all other kind of crazy stuff. So Breonna Taylor has been on my mind throughout this whole election um, since I went and moved there. And even today, I literally got up today and, and thought about her um, all day. Yeah, and today we also have been seeing a lot of selfies come out from the, the congressional orientations that are taking place on Capitol Hill. The squad is expanding. We saw Congresswoman-elect Cori Bush out there wearing a face mask with Brianna's name on it. So absolutely, I mean, I think it is in large part due to your work and many other organizers that, you know, we're we're not going to let her name be forgotten. Absolutely. Now, actually, that mask that Cori Bush is wearing, I gave her that mask. I gifted it to her and I told her, I told her, please wear that in Congress. Take Brianna with you. And she did even though Republicans didn't know who Breonna Taylor was, but her having been in Congress and being able to share her story and keep her name loud, it really made me proud. I actually sent the screenshot of her tweet to Tamika Palmer, which is Breonna Taylor's mother. And she was so proud to see that. So yeah, I love Corey. I think Corey is gonna 
surpass all of our fangirling on AOC and Ilhan and Rashida. I mean, I love all of them. They're my favorite people, but Cori Bush is on another level. So I'm so proud of her. You know, when I saw her going out to Capitol Hill in the sequined Uggs fully decked out, I was like, yo, <laughs> no one's going to be able to tell this girl nothing. She's amazing. <laughs> no, and I also think it speaks to the fact that, look, we now have Ferguson activists taking over the Capitol, which mm -hmm. is exactly what we've been fighting for all this time. What what movement work like your, like your own has been really just building upon to reach moments like this. And that makes me so happy. That makes the story even more beautiful that you gifted that face mask to her because it just <laughs> so like Nipsey Hussle said, this is a marathon, not a sprint. So I always look for the long term. And like you said, Corey Bush and AOC and Rashida and Ilhan were part of a long term kind of vision that the movement had. And now what we have to do is keep looking forward to hoping to quadruple to, you know, even, you know, hopefully more than that. I mean, make Congress, half of them be the, the squad, keep expanding that squad. So what do you think is the antidote? got to keep organizing, got to stay focused, got to, you got to build between the elections. You can't just wake up, you know, in, in 2022 and be like, you know, let's organize. You got to, right now we have to know in 2020 who we're running in 2022. We got to know now who is our presidential candidate that we want to go behind in 2024. So we got to stay focused. We got to, we have to have a strategic plan because the bottom line is the Republicans have had one and they wanted the Supreme Court and they got it. And so the question is, what is our strategic plan and how we're going to start implementing it? So just got to work from now. Linda, thank you so, so thank much for you, your man. time joining us on the Antidote podcast and helping us make the 2020 elections make sense because it's it's been quite, quite a journey to get yes. to this point. 2020 got to go. <laughs> yeah, we're all kind of like over it at this point. I'm over it. Thank, thank you so you. much. Linda. Stay safe and I'll see you soon. Love you so much. Love you. Bye. Bye, baby. Thank you.